0: I'm Isabel Allen, editor of Architecture Today. Welcome to Women Who Shape the City. This podcast season is produced in partnership with VM Zinc, and you can hear VM Zinc, Celine Van discuss the way Zinc has been shaping the city for the last 200 years in a special podcast that sits alongside this season at architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm talking to Claire Benny. Claire is an architect. She was development director at Peabody before launching Municipal, which is an organisation that works to improve the quality of our housing and neighbourhoods. So, Claire, let me start at the beginning. How did you first come to be excited about architecture and cities and the possibilities they hold?
1: Crikey, I guess that involves delving into one's childhood. So um, I liked drawing buildings and I honestly couldn't choose between art or maths in the world so a very kindly teacher took pity on me and said look you can combine those in architecture so uh, that's as simple as that how that happened but I'm also a really urban person Um, I wanted to live in zone one since I was a child and I finally made it uh, when I was 30 by moving to Elephant Castle and then I retreated to zone two in middle age but that's about as far out of London as I could possibly get.
0: And what made you make the move from being an architect to being a client?
1: Well, I got to a crossroads really in my mid-thirties of doing more architecture. I was at Proctor and Matthews Architects, which was great, and I learned a hell of a lot. Doing my own thing, you know, setting up my own business, or doing something completely different. And I chose number three, and that's because clients always really intrigued me. Uh, they'd waltz into the Proctor and Matthews office, and they'd really enjoy watching us draw. They'd make decisions every couple of weeks. You know, they'd name buildings, stupid things. Um, they'd make really weird last minute changes. And, th- and they drove me a bit mad. And I thought, actually, I could do that job. And I just thought, well, maybe that's what I should do. So I applied for a couple of jobs at Peabody uh, and I got one.
0: And you were working with the great Dick and Robinson, weren't you? For <laughs> Indeed, a th- yes. To start with. And it feels as though between you, you really kind of shifted the agenda at Peabody from being about numbers and about putting a shelter over people's heads to actually being about pushing a very clear design direction as well is that
1: that fair thing to say well in a way yes and in a way it's sort of unfair on the 150 years of predecessors we had in some ways you know when you actually look at the numbers Peabody delivered even in the 1870s they were nothing you know it's something like 300 homes a year which was which by today's standards is a very small development program so but what they really cared about was at that time was standardizing things they just got one building and just plopped it all over London and it is astonishing when you take photographs of all those estates and you um, get home and realize that you, <laughs> you have no idea which one's which so so Dickens and I, I think, were continuing an amazing tradition that had already been set up there for the the previous 150 years. I think Dickens' big move was to innovate. He had was just got very bored with a very bad quality product coming out of the um, construction, design, and construction supply chain, and he just thought, "What can we do to standardize again, uh, but also to do things?" Differently in terms of technology, I think when I got there, my first job was actually researching whether those innovations had worked and which bits we do again and which bits we wouldn't. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to then go on and um, lead the program. I think I was almost trying to make it simpler again and just use fantastic architects, um, make sure I sort of imbued a culture of using the design team all the way through and making the architects and the builders work well together, which they often don't and still don't. um, And more to say on that probably later. But I think it was just all about... Actually, no, I'll I'll go back one step. When I first joined Peabody, it was firstly research, and then I was in the asset management team. So for about two years, Peabody wasn't developing at all, and it decided to invest 150 million in its existing stock. And there's nothing like looking at 150 years worth of buildings, which are struggling in various ways in terms of quality, in terms of livability in terms of how much money you have to spend on them to realise, hang on, what are we building now? What is this going to be like in 150 years' time? What does value for money really mean? And how can you design and build something now, which is still extremely robust and not costing your organisation a lot of money into the future, especially since the rents coming in really are tight and can't therefore afford to be paying for big mistakes and issues in the future?
0: So I know you've got a particular soft spot, haven't you, for 1930s mansion blocks, famously. (laughs) Did that devotion come before or after you started actually investigating housing stock and working out what Mm. worked?
1: Actually, it was 2008 when I moved into a 30s building and it's 30s blocks don't tend to be mansion blocks. Mansion blocks, the definition is they look like one house and they're actually 50 flats, but... 30s ones can ramble and go on and be in crazy shapes and courtyards and so forth. So 30s blocks of flats. uh, Yes, I moved into one and very boringly, uh, we had to renew our entire district heating system. And so I thought, well, there must be other people doing this in similar buildings uh, who don't run wires all over the place and Pipes and so forth. So I started looking up all the 30s mansion blocks in London, and then it just became a sort of slightly weird train spottery obsession. And I've got a website called londondecoflats.co.uk, which is kind of the results of my nerdiness. And of course, they're beautiful and interesting. They're also very high density. Dolphin Square, for instance, is, you know, 450 homes a hectare, which would be considered sort of super density now. And of course, a lot of that is because it's corridors, it's small flats, it's all kinds of things. But you know, it's often also interesting ground floor uses. Frankly, not in my case, but swimming pools, tennis courts, uh, shops, all kinds of things. So it was that there was also a thirties idea of, you know, the unité idea that you you've got everything in one building. You don't need to leave, which of course becomes horribly prescient when uh, you know you're locked into it. But it was a personal reason in a way why I started looking at deco stuff. And but once you once I started analysing density, amenities, all kinds of things, I realised that they were a, a fantastic model for today.
0: So I want to ask you, before you come on to municipal, I want to ask you about your travels, because you took a break, didn't you, between Peabody and launching your own business. Yeah. And it's a kind of very grown-up take on interrailing, really, <laughs> <laughs> around the European cities working out, as I understand it, what worked
1: and what didn't in terms of housing. Yeah. So what, what did you learn? Did anything surprise you? um many things Uh, I was away for two months and yes you can buy interrail tickets as a grown-up uh 500 pounds a month it's a total bargain um and I will never regret doing it what did I learn I mean it was seven years ago now so you're gonna have to forgive you know the slight cherry picking and um middle-aged brain but I went to 20 cities I looked at 70 housing schemes and the hardest thing really around comparisons is that London's just completely different to other European cities. For a start, it's much, much bigger. Then you get the whole affordability issue and you get centralised governance. So London can't solve its own problems. Uh, the mayor can really only you know, raise taxes and funds in a very, very particular way. But if you're in Vienna or in Berlin, the sort of governance there means that, right, we've got a problem here let's fix it ourselves, really difficult for Sadiq Khan. In terms of spatial difference, you also get this British fear of communal living. Even though London is 50% flats, everybody's just terrified of talking to each other and running a building together. Even where I live, which is kind of quite hippie, it's actually really hard to get people enthused about collective decision making. And in fact, they almost actively hate it. So things like communal gardens, you know, anything that has to be managed in common tend to struggle in London and also tend to be sort of perimeters tend to be closed off. In fact, they are in northern France as well. But the minute you go south of northern France, basically anybody can walk anywhere and nobody's worried about either members of the public or kind of other residents uh completely sharing uh spaces and i'm i sort of hope the next generations not so boringly isolationist and they probably can't afford to be to be honest and then they always put cars underground <laughs> in europe and you know the ground plane is so precious and it's just ruined by cars here all day long everywhere even high-end housing to be honest I just can't believe we really do it and of course it's about viability and it's about land speculation and that's the other reason London is so hard to compare to Europe is that we've just got kind of crazy land speculation which means that every developer has to pay a fortune for a piece of land which means they can't spend that on the building and then you know the spiral continues.
0: This is Women Who Shape the City, a series of conversations produced by Architecture Today in partnership with BM Zinc, shaping cities since 1837. You can find out more at vmsinc.co.uk.
1: The other thing, finally, I'd, I'd like us to do better over here is find the standard construction details they seem to have on the continent. I mean, that sounds very pedestrian, but there's actually an understanding about the way you design and build things over there and a kind of more collaborative vibe between architects and builders which means that build quality is just better over there uh, in a way that it still isn't over here and there's still a culture war and a turf war between designers and contractors and I wish we could find a way of solving that.
0: All those issues touch so deeply on the English psyche don't they and we have this kind of cult of individualism if you like and I know when editing the HA, I kept this tally of the amount of housing projects that got sent in, which were like, I was breaking new ground, and it's a prototype, and it did cost a fortune, but the thing is, everybody's now going to adopt these standard systems and details we've worked out, and therefore, it'll become efficient, and of course, nobody ever did. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody reinvented the wheel again, and again, and again, and it seemed to be uh, something about our culture, but also about architectural education, everybody wanted to innovate, nobody wanted to refine. And I think the other thing you touched on this business about the, the kind of isolationist way of living, again, that seems to me it goes so much deeper than architecture or design or even policy. I don't know how you begin to tackle those things. It's almost do we have to you know, lose everything we think about our Englishness of being kind of private and quirky and creative and somehow identify a new culture going forward?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that won't happen in my lifetime, I don't think. But I did go to a conference about three or four years ago, I think, and I put my hand up and said something about all oh, British people, are this, that and the other. And some young people like turned around they're probably in their early 20s and just almost finger pointed me and said, this is bullshit, you know. Um, who do you who do you think you are speaking for British people we're British we love and I thought yeah but you're 22 so you don't get it yet you know but (laughs) so which was patronizing of me to think it but I also just wondered whether we are in for a generational change and that people are going to be far less antsy uh, culturally about sharing things you know even things like santander bikes or i mean just parking spaces you know that parking space is mine it's like no 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 but this thing called a street and then you you come home and you it's a bit potluck but you park somewhere and it's much much more efficient if you don't have to have your allocated space because then people can sort of slot in it's a bit like hot desk i suppose Yeah, i think
0: you're right and i think i mean car clubs is the obvious one isn't it and i remember the first housing scheme i was working on which now is probably 13 14 years ago and, and we were doing all sorts of things which really very radical but the the, the sort of sticking point in public consultation was the suggestion that there would be a car club car I mean there were parking spaces it wasn't like we were saying people couldn't have their own cars honestly the absolute outrage it was as though we'd suggested that they all shared a bathroom or something
1: indeed but I think to talk about car clubs completely misunderstands what a car is for um, a car, OK, it's to get from A to B, but it's it's not. <laughs> a car's almost like a dog. It's like a member of the family. You love it. It shows your personality. And forgetting the dog analogy for a minute, it's also you can put your own stuff in it. It can be dirty. So, you know, it's not about getting from A to B. So I just think people, unless they're very urban and quite hipster, just don't really... They don't, want to do, they don't want to share that thing. Mm. They just don't. I mean, I don't drive, so it's all a complete mystery to me. And the outrage around low-traffic neighbourhoods around my neighbourhood has been quite extraordinary, and I just have to not talk to certain people about it, including my mum, actually. <laughs> so, yes.
0: So having garnered these kind of observations and insights and taken a bit of time to travel and research and think about it, did that change the business you then launched when you came back to England?
1: Oh, interesting. Um, the reason I really set up is just, oh, there are two reasons, really. Um, I, I couldn't face another corporate job for a bit. I'm not going to lie about that. They can sort of take it out of you. Um, but my basic question was, uh, and as always, you know, why isn't more housing designed and built better? Why do we just have to look at crap all the time? It just drives me mad. So I I kind of researched who delivered housing in the UK and actually realised it's about 70% private sector and 30% public sector and in the private sector it's mostly it's like 16 house builders do you know 50% of it or something so there's a thing that could be tackled over there around quality then there's the 30% public sector which includes a bit of self-build and all sorts of things as well and I was just honest with myself in admitting I just couldn't tackle the private sector issue Um, in a way it's none of my business I don't have the tools or the cultural knowledge you know, I've got a bit of it, but I just thought they're going to say to me, sorry, who are you? Go away. (laughs) So I just thought, right, actually council delivery is on the rise, only just at that point. And often the development teams in councils are slightly less experienced. They get stuck in the weeds of process because process is what it's all about in the public sector or can be all about. And it just stopped them delivering good stuff. And I thought, right, I can really help them navigate that stuff. So I developed an idea about sort of four tools which public sector clients have to get great results and I wrote them in a book and I basically used that book and the four tools to just preach the gospel of quality to my clients and actually also walk in the door and help them with very particular things they're struggling with. So that's the genesis of municipal really.
0: And were you correct in your assumption about the private sector or have you since actually had private developers coming to you saying actually we could use a bit of your fairy dust?
1: No, I absolutely haven't. Uh, and I also know that a particular very famous house builder was going to employ a good friend of mine to improve their product. Uh, but it was that decision was made at board level, I think. And then the executives just made mincemeat of that person and just said, go away, we don't want you. So so there is a huge tank of turnaround there in some cases
0: so what are you finding are the biggest barriers to delivering quality on the ground
1: the four issues i have are you know culture is there is there a culture in a public sector um, organization of doing quality you know do they reward people for that or actually are people basically rewarded for banging it out getting numbers out on time and to budget and you know the basic answer is that most people are incentivized by just finishing it and actually Just finishing some housing is bloody difficult, as you know, Isabel. And so you want to give a gold medal to everyone that just finishes a house. So the quality bit is always kind of, oh, isn't that a nice to have? And I'm like, no, 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 it's the whole point. So kind of it's the whole point, getting into the culture of places who are just struggling to finish things and get them out is quite a difficult sell sometimes. So that's that's point one. Point two, I guess, is there are things like just writing a brief, a lot of clients I know um, will just say, well, we told the architects to a write the brief and be, you know, that we just wanted to get as many homes on that site as we could. And so I just said, well, no, you need to be much more directional, you know, much more. We want this and this is our attitude to the trees on the site. This is what we want to do at the boundary. We think there's a so really have a look at it yourself. And again, some of the skills sometimes aren't there for that. And people feel that that's the consultant's job to do. So it's persuading people that they have the agency and it's up to them to sort of make some key decisions early. Procurement is always the one that everyone whinges about, especially on the consultant side. And, you know, architects will tell you, oh, housing's not very good because, you know, good architects don't get procured. I mean, it's a small part of the story. It is part of it. But actually, procurement processes in the public sector quite often are set up by non-development professionals, procurement professionals. But but that's, again, because their client, the procurement professional's client, i.e. the development person, hasn't told them what they want. They haven't said, I want a high-quality architect and I want them from the start to the finish, but I want them to be able to work with the builders carefully. They haven't sort of specified what kind of architect they want, so they get what the spreadsheet tells them. So you end up with something quite uniform and bland. And then often, as well, the architect gets dumped off the planning because they're not perceived to be able to work with builders very well so that is you know i mean if i had to say where the quality was always lost it's between a planning consent and start on site that's that's the golden hour in which you can do something properly or or not
0: you're listening to women who shape the city produced by architecture today in partnership with vms inc shaping cities since 1837 find out more at vms
1: But I think the other challenge, you know, to be fair to clients is that actually some architects and some builders just don't really know their craft that well either. And I think they could really pull their socks up and they can do that around uh, the climate change challenge. I think, you know, there's a you have to just relearn every single way you design and every single way you put something together in order to meet these standards. And in doing that, you'll end up designing something that's more standardised and better quality which will be great I think my clients get extremely frustrated when uh, architects just can't be collaborative with builders or can't design things that really kind of work in real life if I can put it like that there's plenty that can but there's actually just too many that that can't so there's a bit of re-education there. It's um, very
0: difficult isn't it that process of relearning? learning because in a way it feels as though actually it has to be something as drastic as the RIBA almost making everybody re qualify after 10 years, 20 years, whatever it is. You know, like when there's ideas that everybody has to retake their driving test every decade. Yeah. Because actually, unless you have something that overarching, I mean, everyone's just too busy, aren't they? They're chasing the next fee bid and the next deadline. I mean, who's going to take time out to unpick and relearn unless they're actually forced to do it?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I've got a secret authoritarian inside me. And um, that, that person is coming out and saying, come on, we've just got to almost treat it like a crisis, you know, and say, you have to do day release, you know, every two weeks, you're going to go on this thing, you, you could actually choose to do it and then get a kite mark of some kind saying, you know, we've been on the housing design special course, and we can now do this, this and this, and then housing clients would think, oh, great they understand buildability, they understand long-term costs, they understand service charges, they understand uh, passive house. I spoke to Russell Curtis about this a few years ago, and he said, God, we'd, we'd all sign up for that in an instant. <laughs> and I don't think he was implying that they couldn't you know, design housing, but I think he was just saying if there was a course that was specifically designed to address that stuff and kind of make everyone pull their socks up uh, who wanted to get involved in housing, then he'd be up for it.
0: So what have been your big successes? I mean, first of all, I know at Peabody you very much had an agenda of diversifying the range of architects, especially in terms of practice size and age and bringing them in, and and you had a lot of success with that. Have you managed to do that in the work you're doing now to actually make people consider practices they wouldn't otherwise have looked at? Mm -hmm.
1: To be honest with you, the public sector is ahead of the game on some of this now. Their procurement practices are changing very much so to include much more social value, whether that's, you know, architects changing their staff or um, social value within the project, sort of making sure you do outreach work to schools and communities and whatever it is. So um, if anything, public sector clients are asking architects to do too much they say you know for this money come and do these 50 things in in addition to doing architecture and architects are coming to me and saying we'd love to do all that but we're you know we're SMEs we're, we're not even SMEs we're micro businesses and it's really difficult I also think that with the equality and diversity bit it does take a long time for that to change and filter through right from architectural education, which, of course, is stupidly expensive, which doesn't help anyone. And that's where it's got to start. And there are some amazing initiatives around apprenticeships now, which I think are sort of bringing different people through. So if you starkly look at the architectural profession as it is at the moment, you, you know, it's still you know, not remotely where London is. You know, London's 40 percent BAME, for instance. And sorry to use that term. I know it's kind of crap and everybody uh, knows that. And with architects, it's only, I can't remember, barely that 6%, 8%, something like that. So we've already got a structural problem. But when Peter George Enfield says, I want my architectural practices to look like this, he, he's not going to get it because they just don't. So what has to happen is is much earlier, which is what's happening now in school, in education, in sustaining people through practice Finn Harper is doing some great stuff at uh, Open City around uh, the Accelerate programme. And, that you know, there's there's many programmes which are helping people that wouldn't ordinarily study architecture to do it. So that's, I think, the way something I'm doing at the moment. Um, I'm hoping to launch it soon, but it's complicated, much more complicated than I gave it credit for, <laughs> is a, a directory of architects with some of those stats shown. So as well as, you know, the ordinary stats around turnover, number of staff, where's your HQ, all that kind of thing. So it's a sort of very high level, instant marker of who's doing what and who they've got there and who might be appropriate for a particular area or a particular scheme. So currently I've I've collected all the data. It's just all a question of the legals around it now. So. Uh, that's <laughs> that's what I'm going through at the moment, but I'm really hoping to be able to launch that in the next uh, few months.
0: So we talked about the shortage of skills or the out of dateness of skills and the lack of diversity uh, that besets the architectural profession. What about the client base? So <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone's on the stats on the number of directors of private house builders that are I mean, white and are the middle class. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think we can hazard a decent guess. Can't yeah. We? yeah. And. Even within the public sector, which is obviously much more progressive in those terms, do we have the right skills? Obviously, public practice have done a great job in terms of bringing more design talent in. But for example, when you talk about writing the brief right at the start, do so people actually have those skills to write? I mean, that's a very particular skill set, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. I'd say the. Diversity of development staff is amazing and local authorities you'd expect it to be really so I don't think they're struggling with that but in terms of the skills to meet the four themes in my book um, no you know they're very sparse they are there but um, they're just not and I've often wondered whether and I don't know how to solve it if I'm honest with you but whether there's a a course that's needed like a conversion course almost you've done architecture for maybe part one or two um and then you've probably got a bit of skills in industry for a bit so it's sort of like public practice but an official course which sends architects and or surveyors for a year to learn about how to do development and what it is and of course you learn all the financials you learn the risks but you also learn what is quality you know what, what are we making uh why who for How do you get that quality? I I think it'd be a really valuable course to do and that architecture students, of whom there are way, way too many, could very usefully go off and sort of officially be client side rather than learning on the job, which is what uh, I had to do.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because people like um, Roger Zagolovich wrote that book, didn't he? What's it called? It, Shouldn't We All Be Developers or something, which is right. a, very, a very nice idea. I think, you know, there are individuals, well, you and me included, you kind of trained as architects and threw a hat ring and ring and spent long, hard years trying to be a client for good work, but they're a pretty disparate bunch of mavericks, <laughs> <laughs> and Indeed, I think we're all—we're <laughs> all wearing the uh, wearing the scars. I mean, it does feel like being the battlefield, doesn't it? At times, there's no kind of professional representation that actually is for that particular breed of client who are trying to do something very special. And of course, that's because there's no specific education. I mean, that's where it starts, isn't it? I think it makes you feel part of a profession.
1: Yeah, I mean, most—I guess most people doing development are surveyors, so they will come through that route in the public sector they can come from housing management as well which I always find uh, quite interesting and really valuable because those people just know what's going to happen when this thing's finished and provided they can read drawings and get into that they are some of the best um, development managers that I've met Um, so there always have to be different routes I think but uh, I think there's just nothing like sitting people down and saying right what are we doing why are we doing it as opposed to just Flinging someone into a client situation and expecting them to be able to do it. Um, it just, yeah, doesn't quite work.
0: So, can you tell me quickly about your um, design guidance, delivering quality homes, which you've done for the Mayor's Office? Who is it aimed at
1: and what does it hope to achieve? Okay, it's for clients. So, it's not another thing saying what is good housing. There's 10 billion books on that and they're all really good. But it's basically the summary of uh, the four themes I talked about. There's, There's basically 50 things in there, 50 things in that book which say, you know, you could do this differently. You could have training programme for your staff. You could have, um, you could procure in this way, which makes sure you get interesting practices. You could, you know, I mean, it's just, it's every single thing. You can do post-occupancy evaluation, which allows you to go back and change your documents. This is how to write a brief. This is how to, so it's, it's a how-to, um, both at strategic level and and at project level, what the GLA is doing with it, uh, it's trialling it at the moment with three HAs and a council, and it's said to them, go away, get the book, have a look at all 50 things, uh, look at how you're doing, and then find 10 of the things that you're not doing quite so well on it you could improve and write an action plan and then do those actions over the next uh, year and a half so uh, those four um, have sat down and done that and I've gone through some of that with them as well and now they are trying to improve some of their processes in the way that I've talked about if that works and those organizations say to the GLA great love it it's really helped it's really helped us to focus on where quality was was getting lost then the GLA will make that handbook a sort of mandatory part of its funding process. So everybody goes and asks for several millions, tens or hundreds of millions in some cases, um, from the GLA to support and subsidise their uh, housing delivery. And the GLA would attach, you know, an action plan to improve five to 10 things to that funding. So hopefully, it will sort of become a a real document that people have to engage with. But what I was really keen on, I have to tell you, and I'm sure you know this, that when you're an HA or a council kind of, looking to build homes you get audited you know until you're blue in the face on every single thing you know and it can get so bad to the point where you almost can't do your job because you're kind of writing up the audit processes I mean all of which is necessary it's just quite over the top so when I first introduced this as an idea to the pilot people I could see their faces kind of we've got to check off 50 things and we've got so I made sure that it was as self-chosen and as light touch as possible for those organisations. So they didn't feel they were being browbeaten, they just felt they were being supported.
0: Claire Benny, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for listening to Women Who Shape the City, a series of conversations brought to you by Architecture Today in partnership with Zinc, shaping cities since 1837. Visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast to download the complete collection of 80 Conversations or to listen to a special episode with VMZinc's Celine Van Dahl.